0: For the politics of Nashville, to the history of the Upper Cumberland, this is the Backroads and Backstories podcast with Senator Paul Bailey. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Senator Paul Bailey. Joining us in today's episode is Tennessee's 6th District Congressman, John Rose. Welcome, Congressman. Glad to have you with us today. Thank you, Senator Bailey. It's my privilege to be here. Well, uh, as we get started, I'd like for you to tell us just a little bit about yourself and what it was like growing up here in the Upper Cumberland.
1: Sure. So I was born here in Cookville in 1965, Cookville Hospital over here, uh, youngest of four in my family. My dad worked for the Farm Credit System, then Production Credit Association. And my family moved here the year before, in 1964, from our family farm, which is on the Decab smith County line down around the Lancaster-Temperance Hall area. And, and so my dad worked for farm credit. Uh, so growing up, I, I grew up in Cookville, but he continued to farm. And so that meant afternoons and uh, weekends and summers. We spent a lot of time on the farm. So I kind of got the a little bit of small town life and a little bit of farm life as a kid growing up, and uh, the farm really, the farm part really uh, sunk in for me, and and I developed a real interest and passion in agriculture and farming, and and then uh, you know later in high school and or elementary school and high school was in 4-H and then FFA and and got a uh, you know developed projects on the farm, and and that became my goal in life was to move to the family farm and take over the farm at some point hopefully uh, I am the youngest of four so that was never a certain <laughs> thing but it was a great life growing up and and I was you know I grew up in a in a good time I feel like and made a lot of impressions on me about uh, rural life and this area and so it was it was always my goal then to to live right here in the upper Cumberland and and hopefully continue the legacy on our family farm
0: well you and I are similar in age and, and I have an 18 year old son as well as two older children, and although we live on a small farm, I still don't think that he's had the full experience of of being on the farm like I had uh, during during my time of growing up, obviously, we milk cows, uh, I had bottle calves that I had to take care of, chickens that I had to take care of. And uh, my children didn't necessarily have all of those chores that they had to do on a daily basis. so, I think that uh, our children today are missing out on just a little bit of what you and I went through back then.
1: A lot of them are, uh, sadly. And I've told Chelsea, uh, you know, if we don't, uh, our son, Guy, he, he'll he be three here in about three weeks. And uh, I've told her, we, we moved to Cookville three years ago. And I said, we've got to get back because if he doesn't grow up, with that is an everyday part of his life, he won't have the same passion and interest in it. And I'm the I'm the eighth generation of our family to farm there on the same farm ground in in Smith County and DeKalb County, and and uh, Guy would be the ninth generation. I'm certainly wow, hopeful that awesome. he will decide. There's no pressure, right? A 230 uh, year legacy now, I, you know, but right. <laughs> I hope he
0: decides to continue it totally understand and you know there's there's one thing uh, of course you're in washington and uh, spend spend a lot of time there in congress i'm a state senator and and so i'm usually in nashville on a full-time basis january through april one thing that i really enjoy especially in the spring is getting on my tractor and mowing hay and and feeding the cattle and so forth so i know that uh that is therapy for me. I usually call it tractor therapy, so I'm sure you understand that.
1: Absolutely. Uh, being able to complete what I would call real work mm-hmm. on a farm, there's a there's a, a therapeutic nature to it, to be sure, and and a sense of accomplishment that it's hard to get doing the things that, that we do as legislators.
0: Right. So then you attended Tennessee Tech. That's right.
1: After I graduated from Cookville High School in 1983, I uh, worked on a bachelor's degree and ultimately got a BS degree in agribusiness economics at Tennessee Tech and had great experience there great school great professors uh, just a wonderful experience and and then went on to graduate school at Purdue in Indiana and studied agricultural economics there I realized while I was there that 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 really had not been necessarily the best preparation mm-hmm. to get me to help me achieve my life goal, which was to come back and and take over the family farm. So while I was there, i I was kind of thinking, what could I do that would allow me to choose where I lived, to to live in rural the rural upper Cumberland, and make enough money to buy my siblings out of the farm? <laughs> and so uh, I decided law school was the answer that I could become a country lawyer. And so that took me to law school. Uh, in 1990 and graduated in 93 from Vanderbilt Law School, and uh, and then not through the plan that I had, but through another plan, and it's strange how God lays out our path for us, but I ultimately got to achieve that goal, and I moved back to Middle Tennessee and, and to our family farm in 1994 and lived there until three years ago. And, mm-hmm. and our plan is to build a new home there on the farm uh, in the in the not too distant future and move back there.
0: No. Well, that's, that's awesome. And so I know you went to law school at Vanderbilt. So tell me just a little bit about, I know because you actually entered the business world, did you ever actually practice law or did you move more into the business world and you practice business law? Tell me a little bit about well, that. Well, so you know,
1: strange how, again, how circumstances guide your life. So while I was at Vanderbilt Law School, a fellow law school student and and I started a business. It was his idea, really. I don't claim that it was my idea, but uh, he had a a business idea and and came to me and said, hey, do you want to be part of this? And I said, well, sure, why not? And so we started a business in 1992 aimed at training information technology professionals. At that time, Microsoft had just come out with a professional certification program, and it was a pretty simple business idea, which was to help uh, individuals who wanted those certifications prepare for them. So We developed the first practice exams, if you will, for the Microsoft certification. Uh, That first product came out in 1993, and I graduated from law school. The business wasn't doing well enough to support both of us at that Mm -hmm. time, so I actually did uh, move down to Chattanooga. Uh, with the idea that I was going to get some experience at a big law firm, right. and so I got an opportunity to go down there, and I practiced law for about a year and a half, and then my my grandmother passed away in June of 1994, and my dad uh, went by order of age, which means he got to me last, right. offering my siblings and then me a chance to move there, and he said, uh, "If you'll move and live on the farm, I'll give you her house, which is built in." Uh, 1874 so this is not a lavish house this is a simple country farmhouse he said i'll give you your uh, her house and 20 acres if you move there and live there and they all turned him down and i and i jumped on it and said yes i'll (laughs) do that and and then uh you know started talking to my business partner and we decided that the business was doing well enough that it could support us both so i came back to middle tennessee and got involved in that business full-time so about a year and a half of of experience
0: practicing law and then uh, also, you became commissioner of agriculture.
1: Sure. So our our we were very blessed in our business and uh, ended up selling it in November of 2000. And I came home to be a farmer. That was my okay. plan at that point. And then uh, in July of 2002, uh, the then serving commissioner of agriculture, a man named Dan Wheeler, Commissioner Dan Wheeler, who's from Cumberland County mm-hmm. originally. Mm-hmm. He had been commissioner and he was leaving to take on a new role prior to the end of the administration. And so he called me one day and he said, John, would you, had you ever have any interest in being commissioner of agriculture? And I knew enough about the timing to know this was going to be a temporary thing, mm-hmm. you know, just a few months. It uh, ended up being about six and a half months. And I said, well, no, I'd really never thought about it, but uh, that's an interesting opportunity. And so uh, I, long story short, I got the opportunity to serve the end of the Sunquist administration mm-hmm. as commissioner of agriculture.
0: And that's a rewarding experience, especially to me being commissioner of ag. Uh, you've had a passion for agriculture your entire life. And so for you to become the commissioner and be able to travel across the state, because farming is totally different in East Tennessee as compared to West Tennessee. And so for me, when I've been able to to go across the state and meet uh, the farmers and how diverse we are in our crops and and the way that they prepare and and so forth. So you got to see that firsthand as as commissioner, plus I'm sure there were several programs that you were able to see through to fruition during your time as commissioner as well.
1: That's right. It was a tremendous opportunity to learn about agriculture and be more involved uh, directly in agriculture of course I had spent then several years in the IT space and so uh, with agriculture as a passion of mine it was a real a real opportunity and and a great learning opportunity about government both the good and bad and mm-hmm. the limitations of government uh, which really then helped to inform my views and perspectives going forward about what government can do and what maybe government shouldn't try to do (laughs) and so it was a great learning experience and and you'll appreciate this i got there in uh arrived and was sworn in as as commissioner in late july of 2002 after the legislature had gone home uh that was the year that the income tax issue was disposed of thankfully and and so i got there after that fight had ended and then i left of course at the on inauguration day 2003, and so uh, I, I used to say to everyone, I uh, I got to town after the legislature left, and I left town
0: before they got back. So. <laughs> well, that's probably a good thing. <laughs> so so let's let's touch just a little bit. You mentioned Chelsea and Guy, and so you're fondly referred to many times when you're being introduced as Chelsea's husband, not always as Congressman John Rose, but you're. <laughs> You're uh, fondly introduced as uh, Chelsea's husband. So uh, I had the opportunity to work with Chelsea when she was an intern at Tennessee Legislature. And, uh, you know, she is uh, a really uh, bright star. And, uh, you know, she was very well thought of. And, and, of course, she was able to move on and work for the um, electric co ops at the time as well. So tell us just a little bit about Chelsea and Guy.
1: Well, Chelsea is a great uh, life partner, a great wife, and mother to our son guy. and and uh, she is, uh, you know, has impressed me from the first moment I met her. I won't go into the to that story real deeply, but uh, <laughs> as everyone I think knows, I'm quite a bit older. And so I met her when first became aware of her uh, when she was an FFA member, and then a few years later, we started dating. But she's very talented, very capable. In fact, when I started thinking about running for Congress, I tried to talk her into doing it, <laughs> and she uh, she knew we were planning to start a family, and so she thought that wasn't those two things wouldn't mix well, and, right. and probably was right about that. But she's she's very talented in her own right.
0: Well, that's awesome. You guys are um, a great couple, and I see some of my wife Amy and and Chelsea being very similar. They're very strong. And also helping you and I as legislators. There's there's days that uh, we can sometimes have a little discouragement, and I know both of them are uh, I know Amy's lifting me up in the background, and I know Chelsea is doing the same for you. Sure. And, and you know, the only, I guess, only
1: downside to that, and I'm sure you have this thought from time to time, is I'm not always sure I can fully trust the, <laughs> what she tells me about how I did because she, she knows when my ego might be bruised a little and she uh, uh, provides the right comfort to, <laughs> to encourage me. But, uh, great partner. Couldn't ask for a, a better wife and spouse and mother for our child.
0: That's awesome, well, today is the nineteenth anniversary of September eleventh That was a day that changed American, I believe the world forever. I remember very vividly where I was that day. I'm assuming you can remember exactly where you were uh, when you first heard about or saw those planes flying into the twin towers
1: absolutely yeah so i was I was on the farm that day and like most days at that time uh, I didn't necessarily turn on the TV in the morning so I wasn't even watching when when the uh, first plane flew in and the and the events began to unfold and then a friend of mine from Nashville called and said have you seen what's happening and I was like no sir and and so I turned on the TV immediately and saw the second plane crash into that building and 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 you know, watched that for a good bit. I had a number of chores I had to do that mm-hmm, day, so mm-hmm. I went kind of had to go about my business. And I traveled over to Carthage and then over to to uh, Woodbury that day. And and so as I I was going to the newspaper offices in the two towns, uh, the the uh, Carthage Courier office, and then over to the Cannon Courier's office. And and so when I walked in both places, they had their TVs on, and and so I kind of caught up on events but uh a day that we'll never forget i think anyone living at that time i had heard my parents through the years talk about events like the assassination of john f kennedy Mm -hmm. i think was one that really stuck in their minds and so uh certainly a day that we would not wish upon the country or anyone or any Mm -hmm. nation for that matter and i think there's a silver lining there and that is that it brought our country together and awakened us and uh and for a season, I think really brought us together, and unfortunately, we've let that slip away a little, I'm sad to say but uh but I think that it was a moment that really crystallized that we are not as safe as we had i guess decided we were prior to nine eleven happening
0: it was I remember that day as being an absolute beautiful day. I remember being up that morning I had gone to the barn and and had fed. Come back and turned on the television uh, just right after the first plane had hit the first tower. You know, at first they didn't know if it was just a small plane or if it had just been an accident uh, that a plane had flown into it. But then immediately I was there when the second plane hit. And so it was it was a surreal feeling. I remember getting into the uh, trucking office that morning and everything just basically just went very silent, if you will, because an hour in a trucking office, the phones are constantly ringing, and that day the phones quit ringing, and it was just as if America stood still uh, in, in that time, and so that's, it was like things were in slow motion for me all day long, and then it was just an unbelievable, unbelievable event that, um, that we were witnessing. But I believe that it brought America, as you mentioned, I believe it brought America back to uh, its founding principles, which that's uh, God. And I believe then for a season that we were uh, a nation reaching out and seeking his wisdom and his guidance. And uh, I'm hoping that we do not have to go through another event like that to see America do that again. But do you believe that the threat of terrorism is greater today or less compared to what it was 19 years ago?
1: Well, that's a good question. You know, I I think I've kind of got a mixed view of that. I think the threat is still very real. There are no doubt people around the world that would like to harm this country and and indeed folks right here domestically that would like to harm the country, sadly. Uh, So that threat is still there. I do think that thankfully you know we sent a very strong message to al qaeda and to the terrorists i think of all stripes around the world that this country will respond and so hopefully that that message is not lost on them even these 19 years later that this country will respond i think i think it it's incumbent upon us uh, particularly well all americans but leaders of uh, the government, in particular, to make sure that we maintain the capacity as a nation to provide an overwhelming response to anyone who would seek to harm us. And you know, our forebears have said it well in any number of ways, uh, reminded of of a Reagan quote, and then thinking back to the founding fathers, the framers of the Constitution. You know, the the price of freedom is eternal vigilance, mm-hmm. and that's true about defending this country. We, Absolutely, we can't. Uh, we can't rest on our laurels. We, we have to put up a strong defense constantly. And in my current role as a, a US representative, I believe it's the far and away the number one obligation and responsibility of the federal government to protect this country. And it stands clearly and distinctly above mm-hmm. anything else the federal government does. And, and we have to be vigilant about that. And, and you know, I think Teddy Roosevelt said, speak softly and carry a big stick. I think this country does carry a big stick, mm-hmm. and we do t- typically speak softly as right. a nation and have through the years, and I think that's the right tenor to have. But we have to remind the world, too. You know, we have to remind them that this country is what we stand for, and that we, uh, we will defend our, our way of life and our rights, and that when called upon to do t- so in the right circumstances, we'll help our allies around the world to, to stand up for those same principles.
0: At that time, did you uh, ever think that you would be a member of Congress? I really hadn't thought about it. I
1: was active politically as my capacity as a business person and my personal financial capacity had developed As, as I got older. I got involved in supporting candidates and being active politically. And so I was tuned into that world, but really not thinking about doing that myself at that point. I fancied myself to... Enjoy being a gentleman farmer. Right. Uh, that probably shouldn't use that term, but you know, I I had uh, succeeded in, in in taking over the family farm and really was digging in and thinking about that at, at, in 2001. And so I wasn't thinking much about uh, other pursuits at that
0: point. So, what inspired you to run for Congress?
1: Well, so in 2016, as Chelsea and I w- were watching the presidential election unfold, it started to become clear to me that the country was kind of at a crossroads, I felt like, and that we had a good person in Donald Trump that had, had come out of the business world and seen that there was a need to, to refocus America and get us back on track and make America great again. And it was clear to me he needed help. If he was going to succeed, and that, and I saw it as maybe a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to have a president like that, who was so focused on making sure that America was great, and and was not ashamed of talking about that very bluntly and du- and directly. And so, uh, along about that same time, I I became aware that. Uh, then representative Diane Black was thinking about uh, running for governor. And so it just kind of got in my mind. And as I've told folks, Chelsea and I both were talking about that as mm-hmm. that presidential election unfolded. And one day she said, well, I either want you to shut up about this or, or you got to do something about it. And of course I thought, well, I am doing something. I'm supporting good people to be in these roles. And she said, well, I don't think that's enough. You, mm-hmm. you need to be more actively involved. And so that's really what prompted me. To get interested and start thinking about it and and really kind of the idea being we were we were she was expecting at that time and and we were thinking or well a little after that we were talking about starting a family and i you know i was thinking about the future of the country and that you know always throughout american history each generation has passed the country along in better condition than the preceding one mm-hmm. and, and i fear that our generation is at risk of losing that unbroken streak of passing the country on in better condition and I think we can still do that but I think we've got to work we've got to work hard to get to make sure that the country that we pass on to guy and to everyone else's children and grandchildren that it's a better country
0: I, I agree so knowing now what you do about how congress works if you had it to do over would you still run <laughs> That's maybe the hardest question you're asking You've
1: asked me this morning, and I think the answer is yes. Uh, but but I I must say that I pause a moment in thinking about that to before saying yes. You know, it's an honor and privilege to represent the people in elected office, and and would never say anything different. But it, is a, it is, does take uh, a toll on you as an individual and on, on your family and, and the folks around you. And so you, no one should ever enter into it lightly. And certainly no one should ever enter into it with the notion that it's a perk, if you will. Right. Because the demands that these offices put on you and your family, uh, they're very real. And, and there is a toll that you pay.
0: And How many counties are in your sixth district?
1: So we represent all or part of 19, all of 17 counties and part of two, stretching from Robertson County on the western end, little piece of Cheatham right below that, and then all the way across to Pickett County on the eastern edge along the Tennessee line, and then the next tiers of counties down, and then we have a little peninsula that uh, sticks down to Cannon and Coffee in the south. Tullahoma is the most southern town in the district.
0: And the reason that... I bring that point up. I represent six counties in the upper Cumberland, and you touched on it in your answer in regards to running and, and continuing to be a congressman. The sacrifice that you make and that your family makes, I don't believe people understand uh, a lot of times that uh, when you place yourself in that um, the public's eye when you're elected to a public office that my constituents they want to see me at public events, they want to be able to talk with me, they want to be able to share their concerns with me. And so, in, and I'm just saying, I have six counties, you have basically uh, 19, 19 right. counties. So, I can only imagine that uh, representing 19 counties is, is really a uh, really a tough job to try to be somewhere, you know, every day of every week when you're not having to be in Washington.
1: Well, that's very true. And I, and, you know, one of the things I learned uh, from watching successful legislators and, and uh, office holders through the years was that the key is showing up. Mm-hmm. and And, you know, the I guess it's not that different really from being successful in life, uh, in work. And, you know, if you don't show up, you're, you're not going to get the job done. And that's true of being an effective congressman is that you need to be present. People want to see you and they want to share their concerns with you. And, and while we run, uh, you know, represent, uh, represent a certain party. We represent all of the people in the Absolutely. district, the 6th district, the 2010 census says 713,928. <laughs> and if you hear me talk, I say that often. And, and I kind of say it kind of like we would say the Pledge of Allegiance, you know, just to remind ourselves of right. what the values are that we adhere to. But to remind me, there's a lot of people that I'm charged with representing. And obviously, I can't. Uh, you know, I can't adopt any one person's complete view or perspective. My job is to try to get a sense for what the the vast majority of the folks in the sixth district want to see happen. And there's no substitute for seeing them and being around them to continue to have that. And And I think it's one of the reasons why perhaps legislators, you know, I think the founding fathers wanted a citizen legislature. And so I, I think, you know, folks should serve for a season and then go home because I think inevitably the longer you're in office, the further you, you tend to drift from having that real sense. And mm-hmm. so I come home, you know, every weekend, I think with the exception of two or three, since I've been in office, I've, you know, I come home and try to do things on the weekends and, you know, the days that were not in session in Washington, just so I can stay in touch with what people are thinking.
0: Right. So, what's been the biggest surprise about being in in Congress or being a congressman?
1: Sure. Well, the the pace and the schedule is it, we've already been kind of talking about that is is really exacting. But I think if I was thinking about the being you know actually being a legislator, probably uh, just gaining a, a keener awareness and understanding of how the U.S house of representatives and the congress as a whole operates today has been really eye-opening it's a it's a majority rule place particularly on the house side unfortunately uh when i was sworn in on january 3rd 2019 uh the the democrats had in the 2018 elections won a majority in the house and so the speaker is nancy pelosi and the the democratic party holds a majority in the house and that means they. They set the agenda, they decide what bills get heard, they decide the terms and conditions upon which we hear legislation, and and that's really been kind of eye-opening. It's very different from the Tennessee General Assembly where mm. by and large, at least every bill that gets introduced with We'll get a hearing in the in a committee mm-hmm. and and then, you know, bills that make it to the floor of the Senate or the House, they get debated on, right But in the in the. US Congress, it's very different. The House of Representatives, uh, every matter comes to the floor under a rule that sets the terms for debate, mm-hmm. uh, limits whether it can be amended or not, and what which amendments will be heard. And so far too often, what that means for members of Congress is that with any particular bill, uh, or issue and sometimes these bills as as probably everyone is aware have a myriad of of different issues that are being addressed and sometimes they're completely unrelated which again is different from the Tennessee General Assembly mm-hmm. and you get a yes or no vote on those you you may at most you may get to you know speak about it on the house floor but that but your speech is not going to really change the day or the outcome because of the way the rules are set up. So you get a binary choice over and over again of the package or the bill that's before you no matter what's in it. And so very often it's just a balancing act of is there more here that I like than I don't? Uh, can I take the stuff I don't like? Uh, you know how do I think the folks back home are going to perceive this? Uh, so it's it's a difficult conundrum that I find myself in every, Every time I vote of you know what's in this bill, uh, and almost always they, they package these things together where it's a mix of, of good and bad, mm-hmm. and, uh, and that's frustrating. Uh, I, I wish that Congress could change the rules under which it operates uh, to, to help avoid that.
0: What issues do your constituents ask you about most?
1: Well, I think, it, you know, obviously that's evolved a little with the events of 2020, so I, you know, in this in these last many months, obviously I get lots of questions about coronavirus and about the federal response to coronavirus. Lots of folks trying to navigate the government-imposed shutdowns and the and the you know assistance that the federal government has brought to bear to try to help keep businesses alive and keep folks functioning through these shutdowns. So that you know, for the last many months, those issues have certainly dominated. But I think in the bigger picture, people are very concerned about the national debt. They're mm-hmm. very concerned about the direction of the country. Uh, obviously, again, maybe more topical for the time. They're very concerned about safety and security, uh, both domestically and as it relates to to international threats to the country. And then, you know, uh, certainly from conservatives and Republicans, I hear, uh, a great deal of concern about the rule of law in this country and about how this president has been treated by uh, you know the the justice system and the national security apparatus and and how the other party has sought to uh, you know, stand in his way. and And that's a very real concern to me. You know we've we've been through a, a really difficult three, three and a half year period where, the, the Democrats, and particularly the leaders in the Congress, have sought to deter the president, and they have used all manner of of tools of the government to do that, and in many cases misused those. And we've seen some of the deep state bureaucrats using their power to try to foil the, the, the uh, uh, vision of this president about how to lead the country. And that's very disturbing. Mm-hmm. So I hear a lot about that. People want to see that. They want to see the the facts come to light, and they want to see people held accountable that have misused their power.
0: I'll have to say that is one concern that I have, and as we get into the final part of the of our discussion today, I'm I'm going to ask about the uh, presidential election. But I, I'm going to make this statement. And I've got a couple of more follow up questions before we get to there. But my concern is, is that if Donald Trump is not re-elected as our president, all of the progress that the Department of Justice has finally been able to make under Attorney General Barr could be lost and it could be lost forever as far as a lot of the corruption that he's been able to get in, work on, uncover, and basically trying to get it brought to light. And, And that is one concern that I have, and maybe I'm naive in thinking that it would disappear If if in fact, you know, President Trump's not reelected. But that is a true concern, because if we're not able to continue to shed light on a lot of the deep state and the corruption that has been going on for the last many years uh, under the previous administration and what they had tried to do to President Trump's administration, that's that's a real concern to me.
1: Well, and I think it's a it's a well founded concern. Uh, you know, I think we we have to reflect back on the last three and a half years and remember that the president asserted even before he was sworn in that his campaign had been spied on and wiretapped, mm-hmm. and the press, unfortunately, and I'm very disappointed in our press in this country because they poo pooed that and ignored mm-hmm. it and and. Derided the president for making those claims that they said were debunked and unsubstantiated and what we know now is in fact Exactly that happened and one of the hallmarks of the history of this country has been the peaceful Transition of power, you know, we go to the ballot box and we vote and when uh, we elect a new leader as a nation we expect the departing leader to to accede to the to, to the will of the people and and hand over the reins of power peacefully and cooperatively, and that didn't happen. And you know you can you know characterize that however you wish, but the reality is the outgoing Obama administration, and I think it's now clear that President Obama and Vice President Biden were both aware of the efforts to mm-hmm. attempt to deter the handover of power or to detract from the way in which that happened, and they had sanctioned if not authorized and and perhaps even uh, directed the early stages of the attempts to investigate the president or to uh, undercut the president's uh, team as they were coming into the white house and they actively discussed not sharing important national security information uh, with the incoming administration and those things are all just wrong and we 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 ought to demand and expect better. And I think regardless of your political persuasion, you should be concerned about the fact that this happened and that we saw our national security uh, apparatus politicized in a Mm -hmm. way that that it shouldn't be. I I maybe would stop short of saying that that had never happened before, but certainly not in the way, in the organized uh, way that it happened here. And then the the justice system uh, manipulated in a way, and we've seen the first now guilty plea uh, come out right. of the current investigations into that with an acknowledgement that the initial warrant application that was the precursor of everything that has happened uh, was falsified by a FBI attorney who literally altered a document so as to provide the basis for the for this investigation. And we also know that the the even before that, the predicate for the surveillance of the Trump campaign was based on a dossier that the Democrat National Committee and the Hillary Clinton campaign had paid for millions of dollars that they paid to have essentially a fraudulent dossier that was attempting to connect the president to, to the Russians. Uh, and they paid for this and, and it was well known that it was not reliable mm-hmm. or accurate information and yet uh, the Justice Department and the FBI uh, perpetrated this kind of fraud upon the American people, and and so there are several people that should be held accountable for this and haven't yet, mm-hmm. and, and for anyone who thinks that this is just kind of a partisan view by me, consider if you'd be comfortable if the current administration was deploying exactly the same tactics right. against the perhaps next uh, Democrat administration that might come to office, whether that be this fall. Uh, you know, this next year or sometime in the future, would you be comfortable if the FBI and the national security apparatus were being used to spy on the Biden campaign? Would you be comfortable with that? Would you right. Would you feel like that was a a, a responsible and right, uh, correct or legal use of those facilities? That happened. We know that happened. Right. And it should not be tolerated, and people should be held accountable for that.
0: You're listening to Backroads and Backstories with Senator Paul Bailey and our guest, Congressman John Rose. So we're talking just a little bit about what's going on in Washington. Uh, Let's um, let's ask about how the administration has handled the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. In my opinion, I think that uh, President Trump and his administration has done a very good job in responding uh, to the pandemic. What's your perspective on that as far as being a member of Congress and being there and getting briefed on what's taking place in, in America? Sure, I, and I share the view. I think the president
1: and the administration has done a, a remarkable job, I would say, under the circumstances. And I think we have to go back and, and look at where we were earlier this year. So as, as awareness and information about the the virus from Wuhan China that we call coronavirus and the resulting disease called covid-19 as that information was starting to become into focus in in January of this year we know that the Chinese were were withholding information and mm-hmm. delaying the the release of information to the rest of the world and sadly because they stalled on that for about a month it really amplified the harm that was done to the rest of the world, including the United States. And and I think we have to hold China accountable for that ultimately. Still some questions that haven't been answered about exactly where this virus came from mm-hmm. and and under what circumstances it got out. And I, I trust that our national security folks will will get to the bottom of that ultimately. But, as I think about what the President's uh, done and the administration have done, and the, and for that matter, the federal government has done in response, I, I, it's not perfect, but we couldn't have expected it to be perfect. Uh, we have to remember the first pandemic of this scale and magnitude and and virulence that we've seen uh, in a hundred years. and And so we also have to keep in mind that in January, uh, I will tell you because I was there and seeing it firsthand. Mm-hmm. The U.S. House of Representatives and, for that matter, the Congress—so uh, one third of government—was entirely focused on something else, right. and that was impeaching the president. Right. And so, you know, in the midst of all that, the president, of course, he has to walk and chew gum at the same time. So he had to not only be worried about defending himself uh, uh, against impeachment charges in the Senate, but he also still had to lead the country and and so i think as it began to come into focus what was going on in china the president took bold action and stopped travel first from china and later from europe and other places and was derided soundly derided by the press and by the leaders on the democrat side he was called uh, you know names and uh, xenophobic Mm -hmm. those Mm -hmm. types of things uh and they were by no means embracing this and we we you know we have to remember that nancy pelosi uh was was out in the streets of San Francisco, just you know, trying to dispel the notion that there was anything to worry about. Inviting people to Chinatown in San Francisco and mm-hmm. saying it's wonderful, he'll come come out and enjoy the festivities. So it's in that context then that the president was was responding, and I think uh, correctly so. And, you know, I, I, I guess if you were handicapping it, you would say, well, he should have stopped travel earlier. But we again, we had to remember what information he had and when he had it, and that even when he did it. Uh, he was derided by many in the press and the uh, experts and other leaders in Washington. And so I applaud the president for doing that. And I think it was exactly the right thing to do. I, there's been much ado this week about comments he's made uh, in interviews right. about uh, the, the tenor of his remarks at the time. And I think, you know, he, he we have to remember that he was publicly at the time saying this is serious, but we don't want to panic. And right. and of course, that's what that's the kind of stable Reasoned leadership we want from the leader of of the free world, right. and so I I don't think there's anything to see there. I think this president, you know, was hopeful. We want our president to be hopeful. We want him to be uh, addressing the issues and the challenges that come to our, before our country without panicking without panicking people. So so then we also have to remember what the experts told us and 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 how that has unfolded. The experts that were briefing the Congress and the President at the time told us. This is a novel virus. We don't have an effective vaccine for it and we won't for some time. And we aren't exactly sure how to treat the patients who get this. And so uh, at the end of the day, we can't stop the spread. And I wanna just right. emph- emphasize that because they said that then and that's still true right now. We cannot stop the spread of coronavirus until we have a vaccine, an effective vaccine. And so what the experts, uh, said is that we need to flatten the curve. Everyone remembers that term, flatten the curve. But what they, when they would draw diagrams of this, they would say the same number of people are ultimately going to get coronavirus. We just need them to get it slower. Right. And so that's that was the call to shut down the economy and 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 limit contact was to buy time. Mm-hmm. And the reason we needed to buy time was really twofold. One, we needed to make sure there wasn't a surge in the patients with corona with covid-19 that would overwhelm our healthcare system and then secondly we wanted to buy time for healthcare professionals to develop effective therapies and and responses to patients with covid-19 and we did that right and it at, at a very high price i must say so we the president ultimately and, and i think uh, hesitantly but and reluctantly but he he ultimately uh, you know, work to shut down the economy, shut down the country and, and governors, of course, across the, the, the country did that in their own way and state by state, which of course is one of the beauties of federalism Mm -hmm. is that states get to pursue their own paths. That's part of what makes this country great. That means we saw a variety of different approaches around the country. And, and then we can learn from that Mm -hmm. so-called laboratories for democracy. And so the way that Tennessee approached it is not exactly the same as the way New York approached it. And right. we've seen the outcome now. And so we can kind of judge. So what we know is that in Tennessee, we never taxed our overtaxed our healthcare system. In Tennessee, we did not see the huge casualties in the skilled nursing facilities and nursing homes that we saw in New York, which went a different way. Mm-hmm. And so it, as I look at that total response, I think we, you know, we did a the 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 president under his leadership, the administration has done a great job. And so, where are we today? We 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 flattened the curve, we extended the period over which the virus spread, and then the president initiated uh, what is called Operation Warp Speed, mm-hmm. which is a, an initiative really led by the private sector and the you know harnessing the ingenuity and innovative uh, ideas of the American free enterprise system to come up with uh, vaccines. Uh, and so in record time, it appears, uh, perhaps yet before the end of the year, maybe even uh, before the end of October, we mm-hmm. may have a vaccine, which everyone needs to keep in perspective. That compares to years that it has taken in the past right. to to develop vaccines, in some cases long as a decade to develop an effective vaccine uh, against a new disease like this. And so if that happens, it will be nothing short of remarkable uh, and and then what have we learned in the meantime? The the healthcare professionals have developed effective therapies. The survival rate has gone up dramatically. They've really you know uh, I wouldn't say mastered, but they've gotten very good at treating the individuals who get coronavirus, and who get COVID nineteen, and and uh, and so I I think we've seen a, a a real success. Now we've learned some important lessons. Number one, we can't shut down. The economy the way that we did so for the next pandemic, which may come tomorrow or it may come a hundred years from now or sometime in the future, uh, we can't approach it the way we did this one because the price that we've paid uh, financially as a country, but in terms of health, the the and the unintended consequences of closing down the economy, the the other health consequences Mm -hmm. that uh, people all across the country have suffered, we've learned that that approach is probably too draconian. And the next time we'll have to do it a little bit different way. And so as I think about the, i segue a little bit to politics, as I think about the commitment that you heard from uh, Vice President Biden recently, when he said, if the experts say shut it down, I would shut down the American economy again. And I can, uh, you know, I can confidently say that's not the right answer. Now we might, might we need to implement stringent uh, protocols and social distancing and things like that to try to s- stem the tide? Yes, but we can't shut down the, the this country cannot afford it. No other country was able to afford the the extent of shutdown that we did in this right. country for the time that we did, and and so we can't do that again. But I I think the president's done a remarkable job under difficult circumstances, and and I you know I would say uh, it's hard to imagine that he could do a better job. And then I I just wanna say, I think Tennessee's done a fantastic job and I want to congratulate our legislature for passing liability reform that was so badly needed. I wish that could happen at the national level because I think it would help us get back to work and back to school more quickly. But I think Tennessee is ahead of the game. And you know at the end of the day, as a Tennessean, I like to see Tennessee get a leg (laughs) up and I think this is a real leg up for our state and I think people will take note of that not just now, but in the years to come, uh, when they think about where to live and where to locate their businesses. Uh, they're going to know, you know, Tennessee is a leader in getting things done and in responding to the crises that come along. And and so I, you know, I would just say to you, Senator Bailey, and the and the Tennessee General Assembly, a job well done.
0: Well, thank you for for that compliment. I, I know that even during this. T- difficult time the past six months from the pandemic we have continued to see businesses relocate to Tennessee from other states and we have being in the trucking business I've said this multiple times and talking with groups that trucking the trucking industry is, is an economic indicator we're usually the first to see an economic slowdown we're also uh, one of the first to see when things are, are booming and I can say that the transportation logistics is booming in this nation right now. And I think that our manufacturers are opening back up. They're trying to produce products. They're trying to get the American worker back back to work because, you know, the president shut this country down in the most robust economic boom that that we'd ever seen and and so i mean he took a chance whenever he actually shut us down to do the safer at home but as americans and as tennesseans we have seen ourselves come out of that and 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 you mentioned tennessee we have really tried to be very proactive during these last few months to minimize the impact to our small businesses in, in our state, and, and also that came with help and assistance from the federal government, so we appreciate that. Well, we've talked about the president, and so I guess I'm going to kind of close out with this final question, and, and that is, what is your perspective on the presidential election? Where, where are we, and where will we be in, in November?
1: Well, I think the President probably said it best in his nomination acceptance speech a couple of weeks ago, uh, which thank you to the people of Sixth District for the privilege and honor of representing you and, the, and and in turn affording me the chance to get to be there and see that historic moment uh, on the on the south Lawn of the White House. But the President said, you know that something to the effect, and I'm paraphrasing that this could not be a clear choice. And I think that's true, and I'm not sure that's necessarily a good thing, but I think it is just an absolute truth that probably not in my lifetime and perhaps not in the history of the country, if we had a clearer choice between the two leading presidential candidates of of where they will take this country on. In the case of President Trump, we have a person who is unapologetically pro-American, believes in this country, believes in the American ideal, and wants to see that grow and continue and advance and wants to see that passed on to future generations of Americans. And on the other side of the coin, we have Vice President Biden and Kamala Harris, Senator Harris, who represent a, a dramatic change in where America will go. And they're ashamed of our history and want to fundamentally change this country and, and move us towards socialism, which has failed everywhere it's been tried in the history of humankind. And we have stark examples of that around the world right now to look at. And so uh, I, I think it's just a very clear choice. Vice President Biden tells us he's going to dramatically raise our taxes, and he's going to limit our freedoms, and he's going to you know to expand the federal government, take on more power at the federal level, all things which I think are diametrically opposite of what we should be doing. Right here in Tennessee, we have stark example of that, and we can look around the rest of the country and see... How that pays off. So our, cons- our conservative government here in Tennessee, frankly, through the years led by both Democrats and Republicans, have been financially responsible. They have celebrated what makes this country great, free enterprise and and freedoms and personal liberties, and we need to continue down that path. And we see that Tennessee has prospered as, uh, as other states have failed and faltered. We see that, by and large, here in Tennessee, we have safe and secure communities, and we don't see the kind of social disorder that has set up around the world. We have to remember that this you know, this this experiment in democracy that began with our republic's establishment 231 years ago, that we've continually been working to improve this country, and there's still work to be done. It's a work in progress, obviously. It's not perfect. It hasn't been perfect. We've made mistakes. We're flawed. We're humans, but it's the best, government and the best form of government and, and it has afforded us the most substantial, best standard of living in the history of humankind. And so to me, it's a, it's a clear choice. And so I think that we need to reelect President Trump. He's not perfect, nobody would claim he is. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't claim that he's right. perfect. Um, uh, unless he was joking, and, <laughs> and sometimes people don't get a sense of humor. But, but I think it's a, that we need to reelect President Trump, and frankly, I think we need to send back a majority to the United States Senate, and I hope that we can reclaim a majority in the U.S. House of Representatives. I've witnessed firsthand how the Democrats, led by Speaker Pelosi and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Maxine Waters, have squandered the last year and a half in the 116th Congress, mm-hmm. uh, they could have gotten lots of things done. And when I was running for Congress two years ago, for the first time, pe- lots of people said, "Hey, I want to see I want to see folks in Washington get you know compromise and find solutions and get things done." But I will tell you that I've had no opportunity to do that because the Democrats in the House have chosen to to go one direction, and that is to go far left with socialist proposals and and ideologically you know, extreme solutions that had no chance of becoming law and they've shown no willingness to sit down and negotiate. So just like Mm -hmm. we see right now with uh, discussions about uh, the perhaps some additional need of uh, aid to the businesses and individuals who've been affected by the shutdowns around the country, Speaker Pelosi has has indicated forthrightly that she doesn't think she has to negotiate, that Mm -hmm. she doesn't want to negotiate. It's kind of her way or the highway and what we see with her, sadly, and what we so often see with uh, ideologues that want to go that far, is that you know they they think they live under a different set of rules than you and I live under, mm-hmm. and and so they would espouse shutting down everything and and reducing your access to commerce and to essential services. But then we find that behind the scenes, they continue to avail themselves of the things they want, and and. Uh, I think people are, are keen to see that hypocrisy, and I hope that the country makes the right choice. The country is deeply divided, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and so I don't think that's by any means certain. I think for folks here in Tennessee, we need to make sure we get out and vote. We right. need to give the president an overwhelming victory. We need to run up the score here in Tennessee so that uh, we can offset the, the poor decisions that maybe some of our <laughs> fellow citizens might make in other states.
0: <laughs> wow, that's exactly right. Well, just before we do our final closeout, is there anything that you would like the people of the 6th District to know about uh, Congressman John Rose or or uh, Washington? I know we've covered a lot, and you've done an extraordinary job of, of um, answering our questions and, and basically just speaking the truth. And so... Uh, any last thoughts?
1: Well, sure. Thank you, Senator Bailey, first off, for the opportunity to be with you today. And thank you to the people of the 6th District of Tennessee for the opportunity to represent you in the U.S. House. It's the opportunity of lifetime and something I will always cherish. And so every day I get to be there and represent you is is a real honor and a privilege. I would just want everyone to know that as I think about uh, the things that are important in my life, first of all, my my relationship with my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, comes first, and, uh, and then my relationship with my wife and son and, I, and, and our family, that's second. And then a, a distant third, sadly, comes my work for you in the U.S. House <laughs> of Representatives, and I hope you appreciate that perspective that I have, but, but that, that comes third, and it's very important to me, and I, and I promise that I'll continue to work hard and try to understand the wishes and perspectives of the people of of the sixth district and and make sure that your voice is heard and that your views and perspective are well represented in Washington we work hard every every day to do that I do have a great staff here uh, in the district and mm-hmm. in Washington to help me do that and and so uh, f- feel free to reach out to our offices both here in Cookville and in Gallatin uh, if you have an issue dealing with the federal government or you just have a perspective or or viewpoint that you want to share. And remember, I represent you all. So even if you feel differently about issues of the day, don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. And uh, not hard to find us. You can go to johnrose.house.gov and it has all of our contact information or you can call uh, information and ask for our office and they'll get you to the right place. So uh, it's a privilege to represent Tennessee and it's a, it's interesting times. As the challenges are great, I would just say, Founding Fathers gave us a wonderful democratically representative republic that has, I think, served us remarkably well. And I keep the constitution in my top pocket all the time to remind me of the system that they set up. And And so I have great confidence that if we all stay active and involved and, and educated about the issues of our day, that this government can serve us well and we'll, we'll We'll fix the problems that we have if we all work together. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we'll be messy, as, as Winston Churchill once said, the one thing you can count on from the Americans is that uh, they'll eventually do the right thing after they try everything else. so <laughs> uh, And uh, he was poking fun at us, but I think he understood the remarkable system of government that had risen up here in America in the United states and and so we're so blessed to be here, and no one should lose sight of that, no matter what your' your background is, if you've been lucky enough to get to this country and be a citizen in this country, how blessed we all are.
0: Thank you. Absolutely. Well, thank you again for being with us. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Backroads and Backstories podcast with Senator Paul Bailey. You can keep up with the latest on the podcast at backroadsandbackstories.com and subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Backroads and Backstories podcast.